Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College, offering a fully online graduate-level certificate in learning differences and neurodiversity programs. Visit landmark.edu certificate to learn more. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. I walked into a classroom that was kind of completely empty and had to work it from ground up. And as like a fresh, new, young, excited teacher that was like getting released into exactly what I wanted to do, I think I was very naive about what the struggles would have been. And I wasn't emotionally prepared for how that would feel or what it would be like. Welcome to Stories Teachers Share. I'm Katrina Schwartz. Today's story comes from Sadie Guthrie, a young special education teacher in the San Francisco Bay Area. Sadie's first year of teaching was extremely challenging. That's true for most first-year teachers, but in Sadie's case, there were a lot of things working against her. Like many new teachers, her first job was at an under-resourced school in a high-poverty area. She says she didn't even have a consistent staff of paraprofessionals. These are the adult staff members who help out with special education students. They're a crucial part of making sure that kids with high needs are safe, physically comfortable, and getting enough attention so that they can learn in class. When Sadie wants to tell a story that sums up that first year, she tells the Cheeto story. So in the morning, kids would come to school and we had this courtyard. So before the bell rang, um, kids would either get dropped off by a bus or they would walk or their parents would drop them off. And the kids that would walk would stop by the corner store just around the corner. um, And they would just buy the biggest bags of hot chips you could ever imagine. Mind you, this was all at like 8 a.m. too. So the kids would come into the courtyard and they had this whole Cheeto economy going on. They had all these like little social circles and, you know, kids would move from circle to circle exchanging different kinds of hot chips and everyone was bumming off everyone else and it was like who you decided to give it to and a lot of like oh you're my friend here's some chips so you know you said that mean thing about me no chips it was I mean very clicky but also harmless I don't know it wasn't like you know gossipy or anything it was a total economy. Sadie's special education students weren't really a formal part of this economy they all had autism and didn't communicate much verbally But one boy absolutely loved hot chips. Anything like Takis, Hot Cheetos, you name it, he was all about it. And so he would get off the bus and immediately he would run out to the courtyard and he would kind of just circle around and, you know, look for hot chips. And he had these like hawk eyes so he could see... I remember specifically one time there was a girl all the way across the courtyard and she had a huge bag of hot chips and she put it in her backpack and she put her backpack down and then she turned around and started talking to her friends. In a split second, he was off across the courtyard. Running super fast, grabbed the backpack, got the hot chips out, was running around trying to stuff as many in his mouth and I can't even imagine what myself and my staff look like like trying to chase after him to give this poor girl their hot chips back and... I can see why this would be stressful. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, just imagine this kid running around this yard and everybody looking at him. Like the Cheeto terrorist. (laughs) (laughs) 
For Sadie, the Cheeto terrorist was one more thing on a long list of looming challenges. It sounds funny now, but at the time it was incredibly stressful for me and my staff. It felt like this kind of insurmountable problem. It was happening every morning, so it was not a great way to start the day. Remember, Sadie was a brand new teacher, an intern teacher even. She was still in her master's program. And here she was with eight high-need students spanning three grade levels. Only one student was at all verbal, and another one expressed himself violently. Sadie said she probably would have needed two more aides in her classroom to give each kid the close attention she felt they deserved. Her expectation of morning meetings, behavior charts, and inclusion in general education classrooms went out the window. Sadie's mom was a big reason she got through this year. She had a lot of really great advice, and she would take days off and come to my classroom, which was really nice. Jessica Cortez has worked in special education for most of her career. She and Sadie are really close. They both have blonde hair and striking blue eyes. But where Sadie speaks with vigor and passion for the changes she'd like to see in special education, her mom speaks more reflectively. And they don't just look alike. When you hear them talk, they sound similar, too. All her experience in special education classrooms meant that Jessica knew exactly how hard it could be, and she wasn't really sure that she wanted that for her daughter. As a mother, I was a little, um, not disappointed, but a little saddened that she decided to go into education because it's such a, it's such a rough road and, and the pay is, is really poor. <laughs> and um, especially for the amount of education that you, you, you need and, and the amount of heart and grit you need to, to be able to do it and to be successful and to feel good about yourself and to feel like you're making a difference. It's, it's not something I would have chosen for her. Jessica clearly remembers how quickly Sadie's dreams were dashed. It just sounded like she just got run over by a truck that first day, like she couldn't keep track of the kids. Their communication level was low. I mean, even though they were in middle school, they didn't have any assistive technology. They didn't have communication books. They weren't used to schedules, visual schedules. I mean, all the like standard things that you would see with an autism classroom that they really hadn't been exposed to or that she could tell. Sadie felt overwhelmed by her students' extreme needs and the lack of resources or support from the school. The first couple months of her classroom were just safety and getting through the day without losing somebody, without somebody getting hurt, or hopefully without having an accident. And she had three students that would run out of the classroom and I believe five, four or five of her students um, needed assistance in toileting. Sadie was responsible for setting up meetings with each child's parents, teachers, administrators, and other support professionals. She had to keep track of lots of data to monitor how well different strategies were working for each student. She constantly thought about quitting. I lost a lot of weight. I lost a lot of sleep. Um, my boyfriend would joke. We still do to this day. We we called them wet Sundays because I would um, every night, like as we're going to bed, I would just sob. I would literally sob, just feeling like just so much dread, and you know, thinking about the week and trying to think like, what on earth am I gonna do? Like, what can I do? And you just can't believe that you have to keep doing it. Or, um, yeah, getting through the year was tough. Sadie leaned on her friends and family a lot during this time. Her boyfriend Cameron did a great job of just listening, and it helped that Sadie's mom knew the special education world and could give Sadie advice as a colleague. 
When Sadie was having a wet Sunday, her mom would try to keep her focused on the progress she was making. Just a word of warning, in this next audio clip, there's a train whistle in the background. I was so riveted by what Jessica was telling me, I didn't want to stop recording. Just bear with it. Even though she would she would cry and she would just be so distraught, we would we would do, it was like a brainstorming and you know I was always amazed at the things that she would come up with for these students. I mean it affirmed my <laughs> wish that she had she had done something different, something that was less um, taxing on her as a human being, but. In retrospect, I, I feel like she is such an incredible person because of this experience. That doesn't mean it was easy for Jessica to keep her mama bear side in check. When Sadie hurts, I hurt. When Sadie's happy, I'm happy. And it's really hard to find a reasonable boundary as two grown women, which is what we are, you know. Um, my inclination is to save her. You know, I wanted to make it okay for her. I wanted her to be successful and I wanted her to feel successful. It was, it was really heartbreaking and I, I was, um, I didn't want to see her fail. I didn't want to see her feel like she was failing. There was nothing that she was doing wrong. It was the situation that wasn't supportive and in retrospect, I'm really surprised. I mean, just thinking what she went through, that she did stick with it and that she didn't leave earlier. Sadie just loved those students so much, she couldn't imagine leaving them mid-year, although she fantasized about it. Just listen to how lovingly she describes even their challenging behavior. Each had their own special little thing that they did that was hilarious and also very frustrating. <laughs> there was the girl who was obsessed with hand sanitizer. Almost the same as hot Cheetos, like you couldn't take her anywhere and she would see it before you and just slam down on the hand sanitizer and just lick it. You would hear her running down the hall, like she would run down the hall and screaming and you would know she's going after hand sanitizer, you just had to like anticipate where she was going. Um, but yeah, she was really great. She also um, just had all the sass that any 12-year-old girl would have, just in a really long ponytail that she'd flip around all the time. There was the quiet kid who lived for fruit. He really liked being outside in the garden, and he loved strawberries. He was very kind of uninterested in anything until it was, like, fruit involved. And then there was the kid who sang all the time with his mom and sister at home. He loved Drake and could, like, kind of sing along to the lyrics. The other kids really liked him because of that. And the girl who was a fast runner, not great when your classroom has a door onto the street. She um, was an amazing runner, really fast and very spry. And she was in the Special Olympics track team. And she liked to run after birds, too. And of course, there's the girl with the catchphrase. She was really into Wallace and Gromit. And she would say certain phrases. And she would write certain phrases. And she would write them all over the classroom. So I would have like really important papers on my desk. And I would look down. And one she used to write all the time was, every dog has its day. And so I'd look down on like a end of a horrible, exhausting day and like these really important papers right on top of it is written, every dog has his day. And I'm like, oh, these papers are really important, but thank you. <laughs> it was a nice message. There was the kid she called the master cleaner. He was always looking good and he would always pick like hairs or lint off other people's shirts and always like brushing his shoulders. And the kid whose parents were Buddhist. So he'd go to the Buddhist temples on the weekend and he at school then would 
continuously sing monk chants like very beautifully and and you could tell by the different chants if you what his feelings were and he didn't speak other than that but he would sing these buddhist chants um yeah just remembering all of them makes me miss them so much (laughs) and of course the cheeto terrorist coming up after the break hear how sadie managed to turn the great cheeto fiasco into a positive stay with us All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Stories Teachers Share. Sadie and her staff had been dealing with the daily Cheeto run for months. They tried every trick they knew to impose some order on those mornings. I tried a behavior chart so if he got enough points, he could get hot chips, you know, at home or at the end of the day. We asked his mom, you know, to send hot chips with him. I bought hot, more hot chips than I've ever bought before in my life and had them around the classroom, but then he would find, you know, just like we tried everything. Um, and I was even contemplating, you know, oh, maybe it's just the heat that he really, like it's some sensory thing and he just loves the heat. And so I was thinking about maybe bringing in hot sauce. By this point, months into the school year, it felt like something they'd just have to live with. The only way for Sadie and her staff to deal with the stress was to joke about it. One day they found a rap music video some kids in Minneapolis made about hot Cheetos and Takis that had gone viral. I think that video kind of opened my eyes and made me realize it's a completely age-appropriate thing that he is obsessed with. And that kind of reframed what I was thinking. Sadie realized the problem wasn't that this kid wanted hot chips. All middle school kids want hot chips, apparently. The problem was he didn't know how to ask for them. Um, This is a student who doesn't have a lot of words, but is able to learn some words. And he picked it up really quickly. Sadie taught him to put out his hand and say, chips, please. All we had to do was go to a couple kids that we knew and say, you know, if he asks for chips, here's some chips. Can you give them these hot chips to him? Um, And we only had to do that once. By reframing the problem, Sadie somehow turned a behavior that was driving her crazy into a way for this student to interact with the wider world of his school. And kids who had previously not heard him and just kind of knew he was this kid that would steal your hot chips were like 
treating him like royalty or something. You could just see that it was a completely different dynamic and um, he was getting all the chips he wants, which I don't know if I can condone that, but it was happening anyways, so at least he was making friends. This was one of those aha teaching moments when something you learn in your credentialing program, like look for the root of the problem, suddenly becomes real. When you read his case study, it's very easy to say like, oh, of course, you just need to teach him how to ask for it. But when you're in the situation, there's so much going on and you're dealing with so much that you don't realize. But I think that was just such a concrete example of that for me and really hit home. And it just made sense. It just clicked in my head. And I think it's really helped since then too, figuring out what my students need. I think that's what makes it such an important story that I keep coming back to and I love to tell and is hilarious to me now because it was it felt like life or death. Like it felt like this was the bane of my existence. It was going to ruin my every morning. And I, I felt like helpless against it too. Sadie's mom, Jessica, sees the Cheeto story as one of the many turning points for Sadie that year. If it didn't start that way, it wouldn't have become so meaningful for her. And I think that that's why it really affirmed that that she should be a teacher, she should work with this population, and that she should be an advocate for them, not just in the school setting, but in the community. This year was tough on everyone in Sadie's life, but a lot of good things came out of it too. Cameron and Sadie are still together and are doing really well after going through this together. And Jessica has learned a lot from her daughter. She had gen ed students come in and be, um, it was their, I guess their assigned work schedule to help out in the classroom and they really were remarkable with the students in a peer interaction way that was impossible to replicate with an adult staff member. Sadie helped students who had never been able to sit still before to work independently. She and her students ran a snack cart and she did a lot of things to help other kids in the school get to know her students. I had kids who would beg to come help out in my class or you know what I never had to ask for PE buddies. And it, I think at first you're like, why would they want that? But I think it really was, we had a large group of kids who were coming from places where they don't have control over their situations and they just wanted to be in a place where they could help and feel helpful and feel like they're contributing to something. And it's very clear that my students did need and want help, but they were also such characters. Like they were so funny and could charm you like nobody's business. By the end of that first hard year, Sadie felt like she could handle any situation a school threw at her. But despite all that progress, she decided to leave the school at the end of the year. For me, it was really heartbreaking because I really loved those students and I felt like I put 100% of my being and was thinking about it all the time and really trying to get more resources. But at the end of the day, I knew that they weren't getting what they needed, even with me there, someone who was killing themselves to make it happen. And it was really hard for me to continue to go and to think about going beyond that because I felt like I was a part of something that I knew was wrong. And I I didn't necessarily want to contribute or put a Band-Aid over it. And a lot of people would be like, oh, but you care so much and you're so good. And it's not every teacher that cares as much as you do. And... I mean, I was kind of like, I'm a first-year teacher, and I promise you next year I won't be able to care that much because it's just the way it is. But I think mostly what just rung really true with me and why I ultimately left is because I didn't want to be a part of it because I knew that it was not what the kids deserved. Sadie got a job at another public school, 
She now has dedicated support, the right resources for the kids and for the teachers. Her classroom is on the second floor of the building now, in the same hallway as the other middle school kids. And that's important to Sadie. Her job can still be tough, but that first terrible year has given her confidence. And that first set of kids will always be with her. Her mom can see their legacy. She has little three-by-five canvases that they had painted on before she left. And then I think she has a large canvas, too. Those students and that staff will always be a huge part of who she is. Getting through that year and making progress and seeing her students be successful, I don't think that there's anything that could be as rewarding. That's the payoff. The work can be challenging, but the kids inspire, too. I feel really proud of myself, I think, just for making it this far. And I I feel, well, actually, I know I'm a good teacher, which is awesome, and I, I know that. But at the same time, I go through these waves. So, like, I'll feel like I'm, I'll get something done, and I'll feel like I'm, like, the best teacher. And I'm like, yeah, look at this data system or whatever. It, it could be anything. And I'll feel great for, like, a day or a week or sometimes a couple weeks. And then I'll go through, like, a wet Sunday. I don't cry anymore, usually. But, you know, you still go down through these pivots and you th- feel like you don't have anything in control and you're not doing anything and you're slacking on this and you have all these, like, worries. But then that just, like, spurs you to make a better classroom. You hear these stories of highs and lows over and over. It's not a predictable job, mostly because students are all individuals. But really good teachers, like Sadie, are the ones who can take those low moments and find the strength and creativity to look at the situation in a new way and try something surprising. I'm Katrina Schwartz, and you've been listening to Stories Teachers Share, a production of MindShift and KQED. Stories Teachers Share is produced by me and Ki Sung. Our editor is Jacob Conrad. Our team includes Seth Samuel, Lolly Serrano, Jeffrey Edelapore, Christina Z. White, and Paul Lancor. A big shout-out this week to Sadie Guthrie and Jessica Cortez for sharing their stories. Also, special thanks to the video company Soul Pancake. They make wonderful, inspiring videos, including one about Sadie, which is how we found her. If you've got a story you'd like to share, email us at mindshiftstories at kqed.org or record yourself on your smartphone and send us the file. We'd love to share your stories about teaching in an upcoming episode. Thanks for listening. On the next episode of our podcast, can learning about puberty be fun? Maybe if your sex ed teacher is the puberty lady. She stuck sanitary pads all over the front of her cell and it made everybody laugh. Stick with us for the next episode of Stories Teachers Share. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. <laughs>